what blew my mind, we spent less time talking about what's the like dream character trait of an entrepreneur and more talking about the trials, like how difficult it is. Hello everyone and welcome to the Investing City podcast, where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. On today's podcast, we are excited to host Quinn Tabor. Quinn is the CEO of a startup based in Irvine, California called Immerse Software. The company functions as a marketplace between language tutors and people who want to learn new languages. But there's also an added twist of a VR virtual reality setting. As you'll see from this conversation, Quinn is an enthusiastic leader. He really leads by example, and he has a lot of deep thoughts about entrepreneurship and business in general. So with that, enjoy. We are pleased to have Quinn Tabor, CEO of Immerse Software. So thank you so much for being here, Quinn. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to it. Thanks, man. Of course. Um, so just kind of to start it off, tell us a little bit about your background and how it led to starting a tech startup. I've got like the 30 second and like the 30 minute, and I'll try to do the 30 second. It'll probably be like 90. Uh, my name is Quinn Tabor. I, I actually grew up overseas. So parents worked in places like the Middle East and Europe and Africa. So I had like a pretty unique international upbringing. I moved back to Southern California for grade school, um, but always had this like fascination with business and philanthropy, particularly in the Middle East, which is real strange for like an eight-year-old that likes to surf and <laughs> lives in Southern California. Uh, so in high school, started a nonprofit that did microenterprise loans to small businesses in the Middle East. Uh, college studied economics and finance. And then after college, I actually shipped out to the Middle East, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, uh, places like that, a little Syria and Iraq and worked in the philanthropy field, which is frankly, it's investments, but in nonprofits. So instead of a financial return, there's like an altruistic social benefit return. Um, I did that for two and a half years, loved it, like really, really loved it. And then all of those experiences ultimately led to starting a tech company, which is another kind of confusing, like, okay, how do you connect those dots? I want to back up really quick. You yeah. Lost over in high school, you started what? Yeah, uh, a nonprofit that did microfinance or microenterprise loans to small companies. So loans of anywhere from like one to $5,000 to kickstart businesses in places like Tunisia and Egypt and Morocco and Lebanon. Wow. So as a high schooler, how, how did you even know about microfinancing and did you figure that out? Yeah, I... Uh, I think you'll note as you kind of dig into my story, the theme of just kind of going for it, um, which is probably one of my main life principles and like led to the fun and the success I've experienced is like, all right, I'm 14, 15, super underqualified, but I've, I'm like really intrigued by how small loans to ambitious young people in like poor parts of the globe can really like change societies. Um, it started from reading a book called Dead Aid, and then that launched uh, other books like One Helping Hurts, and then like uh, studied 
the folks at Grameen Bank were doing. Um, for folks that know microenterprise, they're like, oh yeah, duh, that's like the beginner's guide. Um, and frankly, I never really even got to the intermediate level. I just started and then learned by doing, um, which is exactly what I've been doing in every avenue of life since. Uh, so we raised, I think it was like up to like 65 or 70K as a high schooler and then um, took like trips out to the Middle East and North Africa and met with nonprofits and met with small business owners and invested and then would like follow up on how the investment was doing. It was fun. It was super fun and a crazy experience for a 15-year-old to have, that's for sure. Wow, that's incredible. Um, I love that concept of, you know, you just start by doing and you kind of figure it out. That's definitely how oh, I think okay. investing or just right? so many other aspects of life kind of work. Um, so what do you think is kind of the biggest stumbling block for people to actually just get started? What do you think holds right. people back? The easy, easy answer is fear. Um, but I think drilling a bit deeper, it's, I don't think it's, it's as much as a fear of failure as much as it is a fear of being found out that you aren't as qualified as you think everyone else is. And then the breakthrough in my mind and what I would like totally propose to whoever's listening is, everyone's feeling that same sense of being underqualified. Like we all have that, uh, that like insecurity of like, man, I'm that next guy, like that guy one cubicle over or one office over, he's been doing it for a while and he has the proper degree. So he must totally know what he's doing. He must be totally confident. No, that's like, that's the farthest thing from the truth. And I would totally dare whoever's listening, just dive in. I don't care if it's, uh, investing, entrepreneurship, if it's a relationship, like you can use this exact same philosophy. You just got to dive in and, and you'll figure out by doing. And I just want to talk about kind of the flip side of that. Um, what yeah. are some difficult things about diving in and some things that people, or maybe you shouldn't even think about the downside when you're diving in, but like, yeah. how do you think about that flip side? Yeah, I would say don't overthink it actually. Um, we live in such a cool era where we have an infinite number of tools at our disposal, definitely the internet, but also like entire networks that want to help. I'll focus on entrepreneurship because that's a dive a lot of people think about. And supposedly 80% of humanity has an idea for a company and it's, it's the 0.01% that actually execute on that idea. Um, there are entire networks of people that want to support you and want to help make your dream a reality. There are entire websites that want to train you. Um, there are mentors out there. There are investors out there. There are networks of investors. Like There are ecosystems and infrastructures in place to support your dive. So all you can really do is get on the freaking diving board and not overthink it and know that you won't crash land. It might be a little bumpy, but you're gonna at the end of the day, you're going to stick the landing. I like that, the diving board analogy. But, okay, so fast forwarding a little bit, you just talk to us about kind of how, what led up to Immerse. Yeah, no, I'd love to. I think the first thing is, once again, for our viewers or our listeners to picture 
a tall white guy with blue eyes and relatively blonde hair being in the densest, poorest refugee camp in the Middle East. Uh, I stuck out like a sore thumb. But I loved it, and I totally fell in love with these couple refugee guys that I ended up living with and like really got to know their story well and saw that so many of the what the UN calls like the negative coping mechanisms of a uh, languishing economy, things like drug smuggling, sex trafficking, terrorism, like these responses to economic crisis can only really start to be solved when there's a like budding economy and there are jobs and there's opportunity. Um, so it really, it got me thinking hard about how do we, how do we kickstart economies? How do we give people hope? How do we um, convince the refugee that like your life isn't hopeless? Like there's actually a ton of hope. Um, I'm, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus and that's like my ultimate hope. So I would, I would very much be bold about sharing that, but then also say like, hey, but because I love you and we're buddies, I also want to give you the hope of a job. Like, let's let's do that. Uh, and from a lot of these thought processes, I then ultimately met with some investors and some philanthropists and said, man, I just have this like desire to try to create employment. Um, I don't have a, a business model or a business plan, even a pitch deck yet, but I, I know that, there's something here, like there's something that could become big. What do you guys say? And they said, we trust you and you'll figure it out and we want to invest in you, like as the person, um, which is probably one of the like subliminal gold nuggets from my story is not that I had the brilliant idea or the uh, like the breakthrough technology, it was that I had a support system that like knew me and trusted me. And it was also a support system that had the resources to back that up. So I moved back to the States without a business plan and they invested 600 grand in me as a person to figure it out. And ultimately I rallied together technologists and financiers and linguists and honed in on we're going to build a language tutoring company and we're going to make it really innovative and unlike anyone before. And from that, we're going to employ refugees as language tutors, but also we're going to be a real company. And thus, we're going to employ lots of other people. We're going to employ English teachers. We're going to employ Spanish teachers. Um, this is going to be a company, but we're going to use it as a means to employ the least of these as well. Wow, that's awesome. So you mentioned that support system and that network. Tell us about how you built that or was that intentional or yeah. kind of just about that process? It was. Um, it's like having a good group of mentors is not something you stumble into. I, I wish it was. Um, mentorship is messy and is hard work. And I think culturally in the West, it's less of a norm than it used to be and less of a norm than it is in other cultures. Um, so I really, I had to seek out guys that I was inspired by and whether or not I had the like DTR, the like define the relationship talk with them where I said like, will you be my mentor? <laughs> I only did that like once or twice. It was more just like a cadence of, Hey, we haven't chatted in two months. Can I like grab breakfast with you and tell you about how I'm doing and what I'm thinking about and get your advice. And over time, they became like some of my most trusted confidants. 
And it's those guys and gals. Um, most of them are successful business leaders and real estate uh, leaders who have similar interests and enthusiasm. They care about uh, giving back and philanthropy. It was those guys who rallied around me. Um, honestly, it was three in particular, but then a wider group of probably 10 that like really encouraged me. And that was the, the spark that ignited everything that has become our last two years of entrepreneurship. And if you were to give some advice to somebody who say wanted that support system, but maybe didn't have it, where, how would you kind of, um, what would you tell them to do? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question. I don't think there's like a a three-step solution as much as there's like a posture of your heart and it being one, I'm willing to get myself out there. I'm willing to take those meetings. I'm willing to go to those networking groups. Uh, like if I actually outlined the number of networking groups I'm in, it would probably blow someone's mind. Uh, I think like right now I'm in eight presently. And like eight that I actively contribute to, it's like a part-time job. Um, And then from within that, my second heart posture is when I connect with someone that I think would be like, like a a friendship would be mutually beneficial, I really seek them out. So I send that follow-up, thank you. I'll write like a handwritten note. I will, I ask about, I'm young, I don't have kids, I'm not married yet. Uh, But I'll ask them about like, how are your kids doing? How are your grandkids doing? I'll take like a genuine interest in them and thus the relationship won't be transactional and like professional. It'll just be like a friendship, even though I'm 25 and this quote unquote mentor is 75. Um, So I I think it's summarizing one, just the gumption to put yourself out there and two, the intentionality to like really put the time and pursuit into friendship that's demanded. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. The heart posture of that. No, it's super good advice. But let's move to kind of the company now. So you've been working on Immerse for about a year and a half, two years, right? Yep, exactly. So just tell us a little bit about your expectations going into it. And if that has been much more, it's been much more difficult or yeah, just tell us a little bit about the company. Yeah, man, it's a, it's a tale. <laughs> it, would, it would take a while to actually summarize all that's happened. But I think at a high level, I, there are definitely some themes. So first theme being um, myself being like a bit of a perfectionist, actually, and needing to learn how to put that aside and just go for it. Just take the leap, just start making moves. Um, that's definitely like the, the first thing that like kickstarted it all was getting over my fear of failure and my fear of, uh, what folks call like the imposter syndrome, not feeling like totally qualified. Uh, and then from there, I think the second big theme and like each of these themes were probably constituted like three to six months of my life. Like today it's uh, January 15th, 2019. This all, like this journey began 
like at the end of 2016. Like it, it's been a while now. So it was like three months of just building the courage and then three to six months of intense market research, like studying all the competitors, reading up on the industry, the, the psychology of the industry, um, the trends. Like I did a deep dive and this is why I had a full-time job. So it was just a lot of late nights at a cafe, chugging caffeine and studying and like trying to educate myself um, simultaneously taking in like a ton of content on entrepreneurship and tech and leadership. Like I was just drinking from this fire hose for a long time. Um, and it wasn't that I did that to suddenly feel qualified, but instead it was in unison with like taking the first steps. So I would like take a step, but then like educate myself, take a step, educate myself. And if I ever felt like I was slowing down on my momentum, I would force myself to take a couple of steps to keep that momentum up and not get paralyzed by the need to learn. Um, and then the next step was finally committing to this being my full-time gig. And that's a lot of my identity. Uh, it's easy to be like a part-time entrepreneur who also has like a full-time paying job on the side that like when you go to that Christmas party and your aunt asks what you do, you're like, oh yeah, I'm a, you fill in the blank, an insurance broker, an investment banker, and I have a startup. <laughs> the moment all you have is a startup, it gets kind of scary. So to fully just commit to it was, it took some, uh, some courage. So that was probably like season number three was this, like quitting my job and like really diving full time in. And then the next season was building a team, rallying the right people around it, casting vision, getting their advice, having people like slam the door in my face, investors, even people I was trying to hire saying like, this is a bad idea. It's not going to work. I'm like, oh, frick, that's, that's stressful. You don't think it's going to work? And like learning how to push through the naysayers. Um, and then I think, Probably the final principle is just keeping your head up and keeping momentum. Um, everything since then has just been hard work, kind of grinding along and slow, steady progress. Like, I wish I could say we've gone viral and like we're billionaires. It's not the case. Um, but we're making like slow, steady almost painstaking progress and it's worth it. And I'm like, so glad I'm doing this, not the desk job down the street. Mm. Um, yeah, you mentioned that grind. So I think Elon Musk, the way he puts it is being an entrepreneur is like chewing glass and staring into the abyss. Would you say that is an accurate depiction? Or is that a With uh, like all of your loved ones watching. So yes, with everyone you want to impress and make proud of you and like provide for watching you go through misery. I, I think that would, that would be my only addition. <laughs> but you have that vision at the end of the day. There's a reason that you're doing this. And how do you um, instill that into employees when well, you know it doesn't go well? Or how do you kind of think about um, psyching people mm -hmm. up? Hmm. That's a great question. I like that one a lot. It's tough. Like that, that's a, that's a heady one. And it demands from the leadership's perspective and what I role model, me role modeling that I am decoupling 
my fulfillment from the products metrics or my like joy from the revenue statistics, trying to separate those two and instead like measure our success by our learning, by our collaboration and by our speed. Because revenue is, it's a really uh, elusive goal. Like it's up and down. It's, it's a struggle. Uh, like even product engagement and like all these goals that we set, I'm going to be real, less than half of our goals have we actually hit, which is super frustrating. But instead, like committing to a team or committing as a team and then celebrating, like, guys, look how hard we've worked and look how, like, no one else could be on this journey and pushing through the obstacle course we are as well as we are. Like, we're really crushing it. And I, like, take solace in that like i like really believe that we're gonna win in the long haul not because of the revenue not because of virality but because of how hard and smart and fast we're working and thus that's what i like applaud and like actually uh like allow myself to like rest in just focusing on the process right rather than kind of the result um so i think one thing that's interesting is in a startup, there's so many things that need to be done and your to-do list is probably like pages long, but how do you actually focus? I think focus mm-hmm. is an extremely important thing. Um, I remember a story about Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. They're sitting around a table. They had dinner. They hadn't even met each other. And there's a question that was going around. What do you think is the number one most important thing in business? And without knowing what the other said, they both said focus. No so way. how do you actually think about focus in the context uh, of your startup? Hmm. Yeah, I think I interpret it two different ways. One is the focus of the company's mission and trajectory. And then there's the, the simpler, like not the macro, but the micro. How focused am I day to day? Like how focused am I in the, in like the project to project? And I think both are equally crucial. Um, the company one is perhaps it's easier to define success. That focus is exemplified by having a crystal clear mission statement, an unwavering commitment to what our like goals are, and to not be distracted by like short term gain, but instead keep your eyes on that like long term pursuit. That's the corporate focus. I think, frankly, the more challenging one is as a CEO or, frankly, anyone working in a small company where you have to wear a lot of hats is to, one, make sure that you're scrutinizing how you're spending your time and it's not this frivolous, like, reactiveness, but instead really deciding this is the most important thing I can do and let me crush it. Let me put my headphones in. Let me like make it clear to the rest of my team. I don't want to like play ping pong or get distracted. Let me like crush this and let me do it conclusively so that there are any loose ends and I'm going to have to like pick up in a week. Um, I don't know if you remember the, the app Fruit Ninja. This is a couple years ago, but I literally, I feel like my life is Fruit Ninja. Like there's infinitely more getting tossed at me than I could ever handle. And yet all I can do is just like get after it, like 
quickly karate swipe one to-do list item after the next and just keep my head up and keep moving. Um, I think that's how I would define focus in my day-to-day. That's awesome. The fruit ninja. Yep. <laughs> um, you saw me in the office. It would make sense. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about something that I've read a lot about. So if somebody wants to, say, start a startup, startups um, mm-hmm. are typically technology-based. And if somebody maybe doesn't have the coding skills, but they want, they have this vision um, how do you actually go about starting one being kind of a non-technical founder? Mm. Another good question. Yeah, love that one. Hmm. Man, so many thoughts. I think I'm an anomaly in that I started a tech company without a tech co-founder without an engineer. Um, And frankly, my path has been harder than it needed to be. If I had that dream co-founder, it would have been easier. Uh, Frankly, I've, I've made it this far. Like it's, it's possible. It's just more complex. Um, If I were to retroactively give myself some advice, it would be, define the vision, think really, really hard, start taking steps. So you can't wait to find the dream co-founder, otherwise you'll be waiting the rest of your life. Um, But instead, find some creative ways to have people buy into the vision without needing a huge salary, Um, whether that's college interns or like an offshore team or uh, going to some like a react or a ruby on rails like whatever the the tech networking meetup is in your geography just start meeting folks because in order to really have a successful company you need buy-in from every single person and the idea of totally outsourcing your vision to a random tech individual or team it's not gonna it's not gonna work before this interview, you're kind of talking about how you have some angel investing expertise as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, totally. That's a great question. Um, I'm not an expert. <laughs> I'm, I'm 25. I am technically not what's legally considered a qualified investor, um, which means basically I have a net worth of more than a million. And thus it's been, it's demanded a little bit of creativity to get into this role, but I'm, I'm a part of an angel investing network. Uh, one of my mentors is an investor and I represent his investments in that community and thus advise him on what investments to make. I attend a lot of the venture capital and angel investing conferences in Southern California. Um, and insights have been priceless. So, so helpful. Um, but then also I think I provide a really unique vantage point compared to these other angel investors, because most of them are 65, 70, they're retired and thus their work experience is from the early two thousands, which is frankly no longer relevant today. So much has changed, especially on like the sales marketing side. Um, and thus 
I'm excited to for the, for the long term to live this balance of always being an entrepreneur and simultaneously always being an investor because one so healthily informs the other. Uh, to only do one would really uh, stimmy my like possibilities, my understandings. Um, so that might be another like valuable insight or principle to our listeners is uh, if you're only focused on investing, make sure you have other inroads into the industry to kind of uh, keep a pulse on what's going, keep an ear to the ground for like what the actual practitioners are, are talking about. And I feel like that's a, that's been really beneficial for me to understand how the capital is getting moved around and then simultaneously understand what the like true market trends are from the inside. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one thing you mentioned is when you're on the other side of the table as an investor mm -hmm. and the CEO walks out of the room, those questions are really valuable. Can you just give us some examples of those questions that maybe yeah. you heard one you're like, whoa, that was really insightful for me? Yeah. Oh, man, so much. Hmm. The first place my mind goes is when a CEO pitches, there are, it's surprising how different the conversation is when the CEO's in the room and out of the room on how the investors think it through. When the CEO is still right there, the investors ask questions like, oh, can you go back to slide number six? I want to dig into that financial projection. I want to dig into how you forecasted out those traction results. And it's it's pretty granular questions. It's mostly them just like making sure they understand the presentation. Um, and then maybe there's some questions around like long-term goals or the team, but it's all pretty logistical and tangible. And then the moment the CEO leaves the room is when you hear the, huh, I just don't have a good gut feeling about this. Or man, the way he presented that, especially like the numbers or the projections, I don't know if I trust him. Um, and that's when it, it kind of enters into more of the subjective. And thus, it has, I don't think I ever would have known that that conversation is actually going on in the back room. Um, and thus, it's that much more important to me to one, be a man of integrity, integrity and uh, transparency and like basically character. Uh, but then also to like make sure that I'm communicating in a way that like exemplifies that. Because in a pitch, you have 10 minutes. You have 10 minutes to prove that you have a brilliant idea that you're able to execute on like no one else on earth and that you're trustworthy. Um, and to see in my own mind's eye that those three are equally important to the investor, that I have the brilliant insight, that I have the capacity to execute, and equally important that I'm trustworthy and that I'm the person that they want to trust their hard-earned dollars with to execute on that vision. Um, so I've, I'm increasingly aware of that and thus like really make sure that I conduct myself in a way that like exemplifies trustworthiness. It's really interesting that you mentioned like exemplifying trustworthiness um, because how have you or how, how has it been like your journey with that? Because 
I think there's a difference between you're just trustworthy and somebody's like projecting that and really trying to be that or are there like specific things you can do to make sure that comes through or mm. how do you think about that? That's a good question, dude. Yeah, I like that. Hmm. Yeah, there's definitely the the try hard, the person that's like trying so hard to earn your trust that it also kind of rubs you the wrong way at a gut level, um, which is unfortunate. I think it once again kind of goes back to my internal convictions and knowing that as I'm steering a discussion, I'm going to always go above and beyond on including that person in my thought process. Or if I say something that feels exaggerated or not like crystal clear, I'll circle back and I'll be like, hey, I said this like two minutes ago and it's not sitting well. Can I like readdress that and make sure I said it in a way that like makes perfect sense to you? Um, I think it's those little things that they add up as exemplifying trustworthiness and without like unfortunately overdoing it, which is also like an, a possibility. Yeah. yeah, I definitely think that self-awareness is a big part of that process, because if you can realize that, oh, I said that thing two minutes ago, and it kind of like triggers yeah. you, and you just think about that. Um, so would you say self-awareness is a huge part of being a founder? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, there's so much to that. Um, I went through a tech accelerator in New York this last summer, so... June to August of 2018. And probably the most valuable insight was when, because they're always bringing in, bringing in guest speakers and lecturers, they brought in a preeminent entrepreneurial psychologist. Like someone who studies the, like, the psychology of creating a business. And what blew my mind, we spent less time talking about what's the like dream character trait of an entrepreneur and more talking about the trials, like how difficult it is and how the statistical likelihood of dealing with depression or fear or even like suicidal thoughts is way higher among entrepreneurs. You're, you're holding so much pressure and you always have to be on and you can't have bad days. It like slowly eats away at you and thus I think the self-awareness of who I am, that my own identity can't be too wrapped up in the company, that the company is going to be most successful when I take care of myself, that I, I always need to be thoughtful about how I'm handling relationships with teammates and clients and investors. I think I never would have expected to spend so much time like meditating in order to be a good entrepreneur or praying or self-analyzing or journaling. But I like really need to protect my own almost like mental health uh, or like outlook might be like a different word in order to really be a top-notch entrepreneur and CEO. I think that's super interesting, um, especially in like Silicon Valley you see there's like this huge meditation craze, like everybody's mm, talking about I meditation. Know. So I think that's interesting. Um, but I just want to 
kind of bring it in a little more granular. Yeah. Um, so if you don't mind, can you talk us through maybe um, a problem that you faced? Um, just in, I mean, I'm sure problems come up every day, but I just want to get kind of how, your thought process on how you break down a problem mm. um, in the startup and then how you kind of address that. Mm. Yeah, that's another great question. There's there's so many to choose from. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going through my mind right now, like, oh, I could do that one, or that one, or that one. And that's all from just the last week. <laughs> uh, I think probably some of the biggest issues we've had are at that high level, things like who's our target customer? Um, what's our business model? And those things are, they're so baked into your company, it's really hard to uh, quickly address and thus like change. Um, so those are like the deep seated problems that I think are probably most fascinating. I'll use our target customer. Like that's been a journey, just figuring out like we know what our company is going to be good at. We know our product offering. We know our business model. But like figuring out who to sell to has been really hard. Um, it's taken a ton of studying and analysis and pivoting. And I think if there were some quick nuggets of wisdom that would apply to everyone, not just the entrepreneur, the first is you have to just start, right? I've been over, I've said it like three or four times now. You have to start. You have to be really introspective and ask good questions early on and throughout. Um, you have to be constantly measuring results. And when you see like a statistically significant evidence of failure, you have to bring everyone to the table, have everyone like all the different teammates and stakeholders and have them really quickly and healthily address how they perceive the problem, what they perceive the solution to be. And then how I do leadership is we don't have a dictator. <laughs> and Thus, just saying like, all right, guys, give me all of your inputs. What's everything you're learning? How do you see this? Let me mull it over. And then I go back, I meditate, I pray, I go on a long walk. I like kind of think through all of these different learnings we have because we started and we moved fast and we've been quantitatively uh, diligent and analytical. And then I make a quick decision. Um, I actually, it's been one of these things that I can't over overthink it because then you'll get kind of paralyzed. And all you can do is move fast. And thus, like in my mind, especially in entrepreneurship, probably the biggest trait that I've been pursuing is actually speed. Uh, because there's so many obstacles to get through. There's so much learning to be covered. I don't think scrutinizing a decision really would have saved us time. So in that case, let's not scrutinize. Let's learn. Let's react. And let's move fast. And we'll get from A to B to C far faster than if we got to A and then paused and reflected for weeks. And then we got to B and we paused and we spent all this time. Instead, it's just got to be this quick, get everyone together, get the inputs, learn, think about it for max 24 hours, execute and keep moving. And that way it keeps the team optimistic. It doesn't put undue pressure on them. And it keeps them like clear on, all right, we're learning and thus, we're going to measure the success of our company on the inputs, our learning and our effort, not the outputs, which is the revenue and the, the product statistics. But do you have a process for um, 
kind of taking in all that information, but then also on the afterwards, um, kind of uh, like recording how those decisions went mm-hmm. or some feedback. Because if you're making so many decisions, how do you get that feedback? Yeah. I And by feedback, do you mean the feedback from our customers and our staff? Or how do I give feedback back to them? Um, kind of from your customers and staff, kind of the yeah. results of those decisions. Totally. Yeah, it's a constant process. Uh, I think that's probably the main principle is you need to be constantly measuring and constantly in analysis. Uh, and then, yeah, I think how, like what's my process for recording that? It's once again, it's pretty elegantly simple. Um, I have everyone write it down. We put it in a Google Doc. We organize it a little bit. And then I just like read over it until I've like internalized it. And I wish I had like a more concrete explanation of what happens. But I literally, I walk and I think. (laughs) And my brain just like mulls it all over and takes it all in. And sometimes it takes like an hour or two for me to like really comprehend it from every angle. And I almost always have clarity after that. And I, I wish it was, I wish I had more of like a formula. I don't. Um, but my mind finds a way to work through it and problem solve. And then I try not to just say, all right, we have option A, B, and C. And I am the dictator and I'm saying B, so everyone get on board and follow. I instead look at those options and try to take just in like shorthand notes via bullet points how I came to the decision. and the rationale for it. And then I, I quickly explain it and we keep moving. Um, that's, that's really the extent of it. And I think that's awesome. Uh, that's probably one of the most clear processes I've actually ever heard. Most people mm. don't even, I, yeah, anyway, I just think that is pretty clear. Mm, um, cool. But I want to kind of wind it down a little bit and yeah. talk about um, Somewhere, somewhere in all this conversation, you mentioned how keeping a daily schedule is very important because yeah, there's just yeah. so much going on and you have to make the most of your time. Um, so there any, are there any daily habits that you do yeah. um, that really set the tone for just your totally. days? Yeah, great question. I, uh, for a long time, I tried to schedule every hour And my role, unfortunately, as CEO, has so many interruptions that are healthy that I like need to be interrupted by. I've had to kind of back up and not do every hour, but instead like two to three hour blocks um, because there will be a fire that needs to be put out in that hour or there will be a decision that needs to be made that they like really want my input on. Um, So I, I unfortunately, if all I was was an engineer who had like a very clear output I'm responsible after eight hours, it would be easier. Uh, But instead, my framework, I get in, I review my day, I review my goals, and I commit from like eight to 11.30 to distraction-free deep work where I just crush my goals. I really try to, I like almost do it perfectly of avoiding meetings in the morning. I crush all my emails respond to texts that I hadn't responded to yet. Uh, and that's that's probably the biggest principle is that deep work, deep work is only done well if there's like a sync 
entity and a protectiveness around it. And then frankly, from like 1130 to 12, I'm like responding to all the various messages. And then my role as CEO, most of my afternoon social, most of its meetings, investors, pitches, uh, product meetings, marketing meetings. Um, and that, that'll last from like 12 to five. So that's my day. Yeah. Um, that's actually pretty similar to mine as well. Just, I think that that morning time for deep work where you kind of have to know what period of time you're the most productive, but like keeping that holy and not actually compromising on that super important, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. But that was a wonderful conversation, Quinn. We really appreciate your time and all the valuable lessons of being a startup entrepreneur. So thank you so much. Thanks, Ryan. It's a total treat. I love what you're doing, man. Uh, really excited to support you and so stoked to see how this all turns out. So way to go. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. You can find more information at www.investingcity.org where you can sign up and subscribe for our email newsletter that goes out every Tuesday and Friday. And you can also follow us on basically every social media platform on the face of the earth. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us an iTunes review as it really helps us out. And with that, have a fantastic day.